Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Pastor David, thank you so much for the wonderful opportunity to be at your marvelous church. And Penny and I love uh, the worship service this morning. This has just been an amazing time of fellowship and worship, and we are just delighted to have the opportunity and privilege to be with all of you today. As you just heard in the video, uh, Lewis preached a sermon. Occasionally, even though he was a layman, occasionally he would preach. And by far, his most famous sermon is a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And uh, I'm going to preach from the same text that he preached from in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And you're going to see where uh, he got uh, that expression. And so, 2 Corinthians chapter 4... And we're going to begin uh, at verse 7. And so if you would, let's see if I can get this thing to work here for me. I didn't think of that. There we go. Now let's see if we can get this back. These are snazzy, except when they're not. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Notice I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, I thank you for the privilege once again of worshiping with your people, singing the songs of Zion, hearing about Jesus, I pray, dear Father, that as this privilege has been given to me, that I would faithfully discharge the responsibilities I have. I know already that in many ways I will fail, in that I will not uh, do justice to the text. I will not lift up Jesus as much as I want to. But Lord, as much as a saved sinner can, as much as someone who is in earthen vessels, jars of clay, I pray, dear Father, that the inward treasure that I uh, possess might be manifest, 
by everything that I say in these few minutes. And so, Lord, I do pray that all of us would see Jesus. We would see him as beautiful, and we'd see him as glorious. And we'd understand uh, that we are not to look and to live merely for this life, nor merely for the next, but we are to live this life in the light of the next. And so, Lord, help us to understand the great weight of glory, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Notice what it says in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, if you ask an archaeologist what is the one thing that archaeological digs discover, what's the one thing they find more of than anything else, no matter if the dig is in South America or if it is in the Middle East, or wherever the dig may be where they are finding artifacts from the ancient world, the one thing they find more than anything else, you know what it is? Jar, jars of clay. Clay jars. Why is this? Why is it that they find clay jars more than anything else? Because the clay jars is what everyone used to keep stuff. I mean, no matter what you, where you lived or if you, what kind of home you had, everyone had clay pots. And those pots, those jars of clay, are what they used uh, to hold the things that they had. Now, <clears throat> if our Lord tarries for another thousand years, and a thousand years from now, archaeologists are doing a dig of what, uh, here in the United States, and they're excavating, say like Athens, Georgia, uh, or Wake Forest, North Carolina. What is the one thing that they're going to find uh, more than anything else? And what they're going to find are plastic bottles. <laughs> plastic bottles. And so, uh, I think that we could say, if we were going to update this, and we were going to say it in a way that we could understand today, we would say that uh, the Lord has, we have this treasure in plastic bottles. We are all plastic bottles of the gospel. Now, what is it all about a plastic bottle? Why do we use plastic bottles or something like that? Well, the purpose of this is, you remember, uh, the contents are more valuable than the container. I mean, you know, you want the contents and then you throw away the container or you recycle it or whatever you do with it. And the reason you use plastic bottles is because they're so cheap and disposable. Uh, and, and they're so malleable. And so this is what Paul, he uses this analogy, this metaphor to describe you and me and the relationship that you and I have to the gospel and its pro, uh, proclamation. Now, what is he saying in these verses? Well, he's going to say some things that may disturb us a little bit initially. But when we think about it a little bit, I think actually is a great comfort. And this was the point that Lewis was making at the time that he, made, uh, that he presented the sermon, The Weight of Glory. Think about Great Britain. If you've seen the movie Dunkirk uh, this summer, uh, just think of Lewis preaching to a people who are facing the ordeal uh, that those soldiers were facing at Dunkirk. This is, this is the context in which, uh, in which Lewis is preaching this message, and he takes this text. And so... What is it that the Apostle Paul is teaching us and Lewis reminded us, and hopefully I'm reminding you about this this morning? Well, some simple thoughts. First, weakness is our way of life. Look again at verse 7 through 9. Uh, as he says, we have this treasure 
in plastic bottles, in jars of clay. I have to tell you, in the early days of my Christian life, I wondered why God <clears throat> would give the gospel to the church and assign the church the task of preaching the gospel to every creature throughout the whole world. Why is it that God entrusted such an important and valuable message to such an ineffective delivery system? I mean, think about that for a second. How is it that such a precious treasure could be put in such a cheap plastic bottle? I think about it, you know, and this is me as a young Christian. Hadn't been saved too long. And I, I would lay at bed at night and, and just wonder, okay... Wouldn't it have been better this morning on a Sunday morning when everybody gathers to church? Wouldn't it have been better if the sky suddenly had split open and suddenly angels come down and that all over the world angels preach the gospel message uh, and, and so that everyone could hear it from an angel? Wouldn't that be a more effective delivery system? At least that's the kind of thing that crossed my mind. Well, the Apostle Paul straightens out my thinking in verses 7 through 9, and he lets me know why it is that God has chosen to use something so pitifully weak. And notice what he says in verse 7. But we have these treasures, this treasure, in jars of clay. Why? Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. In other words, God has used something that everyone admits is pitiful and weak so that whenever something magnificent is and extraordinary is accomplished, we'll all recognize this was God who got the job done. And so in verses 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul, uh, 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 he, he embarks in some rhetorical flourishes. He decides he's going to have some fun as he says what he says next. And so what he says next, so commentators and translators have had the same type of fun also. He, he engages in wordplay. And as he engages in this wordplay, I kind of want to try to do the same thing. So take a look at what he says in verse uh, 7, uh, in verse 8. Uh, and, and he says, how is it this weakness... Uh, manifests the glory of God. Well, look at what he says in verse 8. He says, we are squashed, but not squished. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, he says, uh, we, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And like I said, Merle Tunney translates that, we are squashed, but not squished. Now, <clears throat> The best illustration I could ever heard about that was given by my minister of education back when I was pastor at Open Door Baptist Church many years ago at Wake Forest. Bob Logston was a retired Navy man, and in fact, he had been a, na a, a navigator on a nuclear submarine, one of those that are sitting right off nor North Korea right now, waiting uh, if, if anything bad uh, happens. And so that was his job, was to be the navigator on it. And he said he, he enjoyed the, the job, he loved it. He said there was one thing that he hated, and that is whenever they would do the dry run, the, the practice of emergency dives. It would happen at a time nobody was expecting it. All of a sudden, they would hear, hear the order, dive, 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 and said the submarine would dive as fast as it could, as deep as it possibly could go. And you have to understand, as that submarine would go down, 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 the pressure, the water pressure would become many tons per square inch. And he said as they would go down, 
the hull of that submarine would begin to make noises that would just terrify you. He said it would begin to squall and squeak and pop and crack and groan as it was holding all of that pressure. And he said all of us men realized the only thing that was keeping us from a gruesome and instantaneously horrific death was that hull taking all of that pressure. That's what Paul's talking about here. We are squashed. In this world, we're under immense pressure. But we're not squished. Because greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. So we're not just squashed, but not squished. The second thing he says is that we're confused, but we're not clueless. Look again at the last part of verse 8. He says, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Isn't this world crazy? I mean, you look at the news on any given day, and you think, I think the whole world is going crazy. And we say, okay, I believe in divine providence. I believe there's a plan and purpose to history. I think there's an arrow to time. I think God is in control. But God, <laughs> I can't tell what in the world you're doing sometimes. Well, it is not necessary for me to know what God is doing. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's not necessary for you to know everything that God is doing. The only thing we really have to know, we have to know that God knows what He is doing. And if you have that confidence, you may be confused, but you're not clueless. You and I know. We've read the last chapter of the Bible. We know who wins. Amen? And as long as we know that our God reigns, and that He is the Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. We may be confused about so many things, but we're not clueless about the one thing that really matters. And so he says, we are, we are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. So not only are we not we may be confused, but not clueless. But he says, look at the next thing in the first part of verse 9. We are attacked, but we're not alone. Look at verse 9. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We live in an age and a time. Uh, there are so many interesting articles that Penny and I read just this week. There was one uh, article that we read was called, Is the Smartphone Ruining Our Children? Uh, and it was talking about uh, how the, the uh, and then we're, the, the, it's not even the millennials. The millennials, uh, how many, you know, if you're considered a, a millennial, guess what? You're already old. <laughs> Welcome Welcome to the crowd. Time has already passed you by. Now it's the iGen generation. You know, the generation that's been raised on a smartphone. And they were talking about how they are more connected by social media, but they feel totally alienated and alone. And that the generation raised today, the typical high schooler, what he feels or she feels is intense loneliness. Greater depression. And I think that what is being highlighted is something about the human condition in that we were meant, we were intended to be in relationship. And you, you deprive, of, deprive us of the normal relationship and it has terrible consequences to the human soul. More than that, folks, 
we were intended to be in relationship with God and God Almighty. And there's an old hymn that I asked Penny this morning. I said, tell me, you know, what's the words? Do you all remember that old hymn? Maybe you all still sing it around here called No, Never Alone. Do you remember that one? No, Never Alone. No, Never Alone. Uh, Penny, help me. How's it go? Uh, I... Yes, he's promised never to leave me. No, never alone. Yeah, somebody knows the hymn. Amen. I am terrible with the words to hymns, as you already figured out. But that hymn is just reminding us of the promise in Hebrews where he said, I promise never to leave you nor forsake you. And folks, this is the thing about the Christian life. Here's the th- you, you want to know what's so great about the Christian life? It's not that we're richer than others. It's not that we're more popular than others. It's not that we have all of these benefits of health and wealth and all of those things. No, what is so great about being a Christian? God is. God is what's so great. You and I know God and God knows us. We are in relationship with God. The One who made us to be in relationship with Him for all eternity. We're never, never, alone. And that's what he says here. Folks, when we get to heaven, there'll be only one in heaven who will have known what it's like to be completely forsaken by God. And because he was forsaken, we never will be. That's the promise. Attacked, but not alone. And then verse 9, I like how William Barclay translates the last part of verse 9 where he says, we've been knocked down but not knocked out. Look at the last part of verse 9. Persecute, yeah, struck down, but not destroyed. What does he mean, knocked down, but not knocked out? Well, a few years ago, uh, we had, Penny and I had the privilege of taking um, Carrie McDonald to lunch. Carrie McDonald, uh, it was, her and her husband were IMB missionaries from Texas who then served the Lord with other IMB missionaries in Iraq. And while they were there, uh, well, she gave her testimony what all happened to her while she was in Iraq. And in fact, uh, after uh, she spoke in chapel, I had, Penny and I took her out to lunch. And as she was talking to us across the table, I was looking at her. And as I was looking at her, I was thinking, boy, the plastic surgeon just really did a good job on her. Because she's, she, 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 she's an attractive lady. You say, that's kind of odd for a preacher to talk about missionary being an attractive lady, you know, from the pulpit and admit that that's what you were thinking while you were sitting at the table. And she's having, well, the reason I was thinking that is because she had been shot 22 times. And one of the bullets had hit her just below her eye. And uh, she and her husband, along with another pair of missionaries, uh, were attacked uh, by gunmen. And uh, all the other three, including her husband, were killed. She was hit, as I said, some 22 times, but she survived. Uh, I thought of a number of things as she told her story about, you know, from her time of being called in Texas as a missionary to the time that she underwent such a terrible ordeal. And I was thinking, okay, shot 22 times. What's the takeaway from this? Evidently, it's hard to kill a girl from Texas. Um, <clears throat> Actually, there's more to learn from that than this. She was struck down, 
but not destroyed. The Apostle Paul had something similar happen to him at Lystra where they stoned him and left him for dead and then he got up and went back into the town and kept on preaching. The, the point is, whatever happens to us in this body, we are not destroyed. But what it does highlight to all of us is that we live a life of weakness. Weakness is a way of life. I am someone, you know, I turned 60 uh, next uh, year, and I'm already beginning to have trouble with, you know, I've got trouble walking, uh, things that are happening to me that I didn't have to deal with 10 years ago, uh, all of these things are reminding me that weakness is our way of life. Now, why, what are we to take away from this? Well, the second point that Paul wants us to know is that our lives are to be a passion play every day. Notice what he says in verses 10 through 12. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now notice, first off, how Paul says that the second flows from the first. We think that we live in a realm of life that will give way to death. And the Apostle Paul said, no, in order for us to truly know what's going on, we've got to experience death first. And then if we experience death first, then we can know what life is. And this is exactly what, uh, what he talks about. We, we bear the death, the body in our bodies, the death of Jesus. And if, we, and if we are bearing in our bodies the death of Jesus, then the life of Jesus can be manifest in our lives. Which is exactly what Jesus himself taught in John chapter 12 and verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, except a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it can then bear fruit. And so, folks, this is how and why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, therefore to die is gain. How could he say that? Because for him to live is Christ, is to bear in his body the death of Christ. And so therefore, dying is gain because that's whenever he will truly know the life of Christ as he will see Christ face to face. Now folks, this is the way the Christian life is. And if you can't handle that, you can't handle being a Christian. Because here's what Paul has to say in verse 12. And this, is, this, this can be hard at first. But in verse 12, what Paul says is that life is unfair. It's unfair. If you've if you got to have fairness in order for you to have a, a good opinion of God, you're in trouble. It's unfair. But it's gloriously unfair. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, he says, So death is at work in us so that life may be at work in you. Now think about that. He's saying to the, to the Corinthian believers, we are experiencing death. But we do this so that you might experience life. There's nothing equitable about this, but it is truly wonderful. Now, just imagine tonight, tonight as you lay your head on your pillow and you go off into blissful sleep, that it's disrupted by God visiting you 
in a dream. And as God visits you in a dream, let's say, imagine that God presents you with an alternative. Got a choice. Would you like a fairly comfortable and easy life? Would you like a life of ease, comfort, all of the pleasures of life? You can have it. But your life won't amount to much. Your life won't count for eternity. You'll be here and gone, and that's it. That's choice number one. Choice number two is that your life really counts. It really matters. It makes a difference in the lives of others and advances the kingdom of God and brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're going to have to pay a price. You're going to have to sacrifice. It's going to cost you. Now, which one of the two do you choose? You see, <laughs> that's not hypothetical. That's not a dream. That's what's happening to you right now, this morning, in this worship service. The Spirit of God is dealing with my heart and your heart, and He presents us with these choices every day. And folks, this is what you and I are called to do, to live a life that is gloriously unfair. And if you're going to have a, a debit and credit list in your heart, making sure that God has blessed you in proportion to the amount you've sacrificed, then you are going to have a very difficult time. No, you and I, if we're going to be like Christ, in that we follow Christ, we're going to have to put up with the fact that there are times that we will pay a brutal and terrible price, terrible things will happen, and we'll wonder why, and we won't have an answer. What do we do then? So death is at work in us, but life is in you. What do we do? If here I have this life of weakness, and God tells me it's going to be unfair. <laughs> Wait a minute, who wants that? How do I handle that? And that brings up the next point that Paul brings up, and that is that faith is a gift that cannot be exaggerated. How is it that you and I can live this kind of life so then the just shall live by his faith. The faith in the Word of God. The faith in Christ. The faith in the promises of God. That everything we are going through, the weakness we are experiencing, the unfairness that we are enduring, that there is a purpose and a reason, and that God is as good as he says he is. Look at the power of faith. In verse 13, Paul quotes from Psalm 116 in which David wrote it while in the midst of a life and death situation. In verse 13 it says, I believed and so I spoke in verse 13. And in that same psalm, in that verse in the Psalms, he said, I am greatly afflicted. And folks, during those times of great affliction and difficulty... The promises of God are always sweet. They're always true. But boy, whenever we're going through those kind of times, they seem especially sweet to us. What is it? What is the promise? What is it that makes us keep going forward no matter what? And I'm going to tell you what it is. Jesus is alive. Just like we sang, the fact that Christ has risen from the dead this means that He is who God said He is. 
And it means that He has accomplished for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it means that you and I have the promise of a resurrection also. Last week, this time last week, I was in a very different situation. I was in Turkey speaking at an Islamic creation and evolution conference. Now that was interesting, let me tell you. And I found myself on live television and the conversation about creation, the purpose of creation, moved over to Jesus, who Jesus was. And, and you've got to remember, Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. They don't believe he rose again from the dead. And so, as the person, the Islamic person was talking, telling me everything that, that they believe in the Quran and the Hadiths about, uh, about Jesus, it come time for me uh, to respond and to answer. And the one thing that I, I, I said, and I, as I... And I Think about it, I was speaking to a half a million people, Muslims on television, and I got to tell them my testimony and to tell them the reason I believe in Jesus is the Son of God is because I believe that He died and He was buried and that He rose again from the dead and that when He comes, uh, the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive will rise up to meet Him in the air and the great enemy that we all know, death, will be defeated and it will be such a glorious thing for Jesus Christ to return because finally the bully that has manhandled all of us will get his comeuppance there at that day when death himself shall be destroyed. That's the promise, the glory of the resurrection. Look at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. In the light of these three important truths, what's the takeaway? How am I to conduct myself? What am I supposed to do? What's the bullet points, the action points? So what should we do now? Well, verse 15 through 18, Paul gives us four simple thoughts. First, as you have opportunity, minister to others. Look at verse 15. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Every time you and I have an opportunity to minister to others, to share Jesus with others, to demonstrate the love of God to others, as this grace extends, it will increase with thanksgiving. And as it increases with thanksgiving, more and more people seeing the goodness of God and being thankful to Him, this will increase the glory given to God. So as we have opportunity, let us minister to others. This ver second, verse 16, this is not a time to succumb to discouragement. Don't dis succumb to discouragement. I don't know, in a room this size, I do not know who the most discouraged person in this room is. But whoever you are, young man, young woman, older man, older woman, don't lose heart. That's what he says in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. This is the time to be steadfast in our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, and here's where C.S. Lewis made his point, keep a proper perspective. In verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, 
I think only someone like the Apostle Paul. Think about what everything he had gone through as he, in, in chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he was beaten with rods, shipwrecked, whipped, horsewhipped with uh, the, the, the cat of nine tails. Uh, he, all of the things that he went through for the sake of the gospel, and when he gets done, he describes them as a light, momentary affliction. How in the world could he consider all of those things light? That's because he put eternity in the scales on the other side. And he said, eternity is very, very heavy. And he means it in the sense of something being so very important. And I love what C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, does here. He says, we, we are too often like a little child in the slums with mud pies in, in the, on the road. We're making mud pies at a mud puddle and someone walks up to us and offers us a beautiful vacation at a beachfront. But the little child has never seen the beach. He's never seen the ocean. He's never seen anything that the person is describing. So because he can't get it in his head, he doesn't accept it. He decides he's going to be satisfied with the mud pies. And Lewis says, the problem is not that we have too many desires. He said, the problem is we don't desire enough. We don't see heaven and the kingdom of God for what it is. And if we would just recognize the preciousness, the value, the extraordinary weight of glory, then we would sell everything we have to take that treasure that is so good. So, that's what he's saying for us. Think about it, folks. Like I said, I'm going to be 60 next year. Uh, and so now I'm at that point where I'm thinking about, okay, how do you prepare for the last quarter of your life? However long the Lord gives for me. And so I'm getting all kinds of, of retirement advice, investment advice. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, you can, you know it's over, that's a little bit overwhelming. You know, you need to be taking these kind of funds. You need to be doing this or that. And, and it's just extraordinary, all of the advice that's available for the last 20 years of your life. I mean, save people, lost people, everybody thinks you need to prepare for the last 20 years of your life. Well, as someone who's facing the last 20 years of his life, yeah, I think you ought to prepare for it. Isn't it amazing? We spend so much time making sure we're ready for the last 20 years of our lives. And the moment our life is over, we go out into an eternity that will last forever. And people who will expend so much time and effort and resources to prepare for those last 20 years will not give a moment's notice to eternity. And the Apostle Paul says, you need to put the right things in the scale and understand the weight of eternity. How do we do this? Last, verse 18. We focus on Him who is invisible. Look at verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How is it that Moses, according to the author of Hebrews, 
was able to make the kind of choices that we face here every day. Here's the problem that Americans, people in Athens, Georgia, here's the problems we have facing us about discipleship. We live in a land of affluence. We have so many givens. There's not one person in this room, I suspect, that you're worried about starving today. You're not going to have to worry about creature comforts. You and I, we enjoy all of the good things of life. Shelter, food, things of that nature. And so the question then is, how is it that is discipleship possible among people of affluence? I think the great example to us is Moses. Because if there was anyone in the ancient world who was in our situation, who had everything, he, had, he was raised in Pharaoh's house by Pharaoh's daughter. And when it come time for him to choose, he made the right choice. How is it that he was able to make that choice? Here's how the author of Hebrews says it. Bring it up there. Ah, you got it. Good. Notice what it says in the author of Hebrews. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Because he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured, why? Notice there, as seeing him who is invisible. And that's the call to each and every one of us. To see that which really matters. Christ, who died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and now makes the claim upon each and every person in this room that if you've never bowed the knee to receive Him as Lord and Savior, He calls upon you to that today. For those of us who name the name of Christ, each and every one of us are to recognize the calling for us to weigh the options, count the cost, and to follow in His steps and seek after the eternal weight of glory. All of us are called to that this morning. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how Christ has done everything for us. And now we have been invited to be part of that heavenly kingdom. Lord, for my friends that are not saved, I pray that today would be a day in which they see the gospel in a way they never have. That repentance and faith, they would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and receive Him for who He is, Lord in Christ. I pray for us who are saved. Lord, for those who have been distracted by the meadow of ease, I pray that we would be called back to the straight and narrow. We would be encouraged that despite the fact that we are weak, that you give us the grace we need and that we by faith are able to see eternity and how glorious things really are. So Lord, work during this invitation time and I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name and amen. Let's all stand. As we stand, we'll have a hymn of invitation. As our brother and the worship team lead, uh, the staff are here at the front. Why don't you come as God has laid it upon your heart. If God is dealing with you, just step out, come on down. Stepping out and coming down the aisle will not save you. But if